how good is it if competition prevents us from sharing our best ideas lest they be stolen or tromped upon, then how do we really work on them to become better and better? And how do we make them into something beyond just an idea in our head? So few times can you really do that by yourself. So how do we create a culture where we can move forward more successfully? You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. You're listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures podcast. I'm your host Ron Baghetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm honored today to be joined by Professor Lindy Elkins-Tanton. Lindy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're currently doing? Hi, Ron. Thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, I am a vice president for the Interplanetary Initiative at Arizona State University and also principal investigator for the NASA Psyche Mission. And these things have taken me to think very hard about the structure of both the research and the education that we do at universities and what we really need as a society to move most successfully into the future. And those, as you say, those are big topics. And so the question becomes, what steps can we actually take that are practical? And so we're experimenting. We've got some ideas. Excellent. Well, we would love to hear those. And this is the Learning Futures podcast, but I think it's always interesting and important to understand kind of how you arrived at this space. And it sounds like you're working on some really interesting and intriguing projects. But can you share with our listeners a little bit about your own journey? How did you find yourself in this work that you're currently doing here at ASU? (laughs) Thanks for that question. And um, this, this question always makes me laugh because I feel like I keep running into this expectation that if you are a scientist and you really, that's your main profession, which for me it is, a planetary scientist, that somehow I knew that from birth, or there was this moment when I was 10 and I saw Saturn through a telescope and that was it. I had to be a planetary scientist, but that's not the case for me. I've had this very winding career path where I got my master's and then I went and worked in business uh, for eight years. And I got these crazy insights about how humans work together outside of a scientific lab, (laughs) which um, of course is the whole world outside of the scientific lab. And then I I taught math uh, to non-majors who were math-phobic for two years at St. Mary's College of Maryland. That was a fantastic experience. Then I decided to go back for my PhD. And I thought for a while I was going to be a pure academic, but I kept finding myself frustrated and irritated by the constraints around me. And through this funny winding path and a lot of introspection, I suppose, I I came to realize that the things that I was seeking in my life... uh, really were really functional teams, teams of people where everyone had something to contribute and everyone's voice was heard. And together we could do something so much more meaningful than we could on our own. And that vision, that vision of a really high functioning team where you had purpose and meaning and where your work was amplified and where there was leverage, I came to realize that that had big implications for how we educate people as well as how we help people form teams. 
And, uh, and that's led to, to all kinds of ideas, um, some of which we're implementing at Arizona State University around, around future of education. That's my funny winding path and my realization that for me, the driving force was not necessarily the content, although I am devoted to this NASA mission to the asteroid psyche that I have this very um, uh, lucky, lucky and grateful position to lead. It's really about the teams and the education. I think that those are the most important things we can do for our societal future. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's such an important message for young people who I feel, I think they have pressures they put on themselves, but certainly they get pressure from external audiences, um, well-intended, you know, it could be family members or educators who kind of try to push them into determining you know, what is their future going to be while they're still, you know, in elementary, middle, secondary, or even higher education. So I think it's, yes. it's so refreshing and important message, I think, for young people, but also those of us in education and those of us that have children to remind ourselves that, you know, there is no rush and we can't really force fit these kind of serendipitous yes. paths that, um, that we take. So thank you so much for sharing that. I so agree with you. Just, just to interject quickly, I so agree with you with that message that you just gave, which is so valuable because for a long time when people would say to me, what are you going to do? What's your career? What do you want to be? And I didn't have an answer and it made me feel less than it made me feel that I had a deficit but the fact is not all of us are driven by the concept of a title for our career. Sometimes there are other kinds of meaning and need that you have that are less easily articulated in a single sentence. And following that true feeling that you have in your gut seems to me the most important thing. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. So thank you again for reinforcing that idea. And so you've talked about the importance of, I mean, obviously you're passionate about the subject matter that you're working in. And it, it, that in and of itself sounds very fascinating. And I would love for you to share a little bit more with our listeners about that, but also the importance of functional teams, I heard you say, kind of healthy teams. And again, I think there's another kind of mythos in education. Not only do young people have to figure out where they're going in, well into the future when it's so uncertain, but also it is it all it always seems like it's portrayed as some sort of solitary journey. As a creativity researcher, I think a lot of creativity research did focus on the individual creator, but I think now we're learning that it is this much more collaborative, participatory, team-based process that individual creations are never just kind of the, the work of one creator, for example. So could you unpack some of those themes a little bit more with us, both the subject matter, but also what you're seeing as the critical role of functional teams and maybe even dysfunctional teams and why that is such an important message for thinking about education now and into the future. Yes, I'd love to talk about that. And also to get your, your creativity researcher angle on this, I think it's great because, uh, you know, you think creativity, if you think of an icon, it's a single head with a single light bulb over it. But truly, that is very seldom how it really happens. We're all in this networked soup of ideas and conversations. And um, I really began to feel in my first experiences in graduate school and as a postdoc and then my early faculty positions that competition was actually not a healthy paradigm. There are a lot of people who feel that competition in academia, competition in learning, competition in your degree program are ways to reach excellence. But I think competition by itself is not necessarily conducive to our best creative efforts and our best um, actions to help the world. I began to wonder how good is it if competition prevents us from sharing our best ideas, lest they be stolen or tromped upon, then how do we really 
work on them to become better and better? And how do we make them into something beyond just an idea in our head? So few times can you really do that by yourself. So how do we create a culture where we can move forward more successfully? And my real aha moment came um, it, early on working on, on this psyche mission. And we, we are now into this, um, we're, we're a decade into this really two decade NASA mission um, process to send a robotic spacecraft to orbit an asteroid in the outer main asteroid belt out between Mars and Jupiter and learn what it is. It's a very strange asteroid that we think is made mostly of metal. It'd be the first metallic object that humans have ever visited. So when you talk about creativity, we literally don't know what this is. And we have to somehow find a way to design a spacecraft, an $800 million spacecraft, when the whole thing is said and done, that will go and find out what this is and report back, even not really knowing what it is that we're going to be measuring. So early on, while we were still in the competitive process, we had to, this was a really a competitive process. We had to compete against 28 other proposals over three years to be selected for flight. So we're sitting in this room uh, at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and in this room are couple of planetary scientists, electrical engineer, systems engineer, um, a, a, a project manager, a graphic designer, a marketer, a budgeter, a scheduler. And um, for many of us coming up through teams of whatever kind, you're immediately aware that there is a hierarchy, an implicit bias hierarchy, not just about gender, not necessarily about race, not necessarily about socioeconomic background, but about discipline. And, uh, and in my world, the hierarchy goes, uh, the engineers are the kings. They, they are more valuable, more intelligent, more important than the scientists. And then after that, there's a big gap. And then come all those other kinds of things that we, you know, in science don't tend to think about very much, like budgeting and scheduling and project management and graphic design and marketing. And I realized that in that meeting, there was the, instead of that hierarchy, there was an implicit appreciation that every person was at the table for a reason because their discipline was needed and they had something um, that only they could contribute. And I started to think that is the magic of a functional team where you're going for a goal that no single one of you can achieve on your own and every single person is there for a reason. So once I had seen this kind of team in action where every discipline was valued and needed and listened to, I thought, here's something we need to bring to education. We need to break our students out of this competitive mold and instead teach them how to run meetings where every person has an individual thing to contribute that everyone wants to listen to and everyone speaks in every meeting. So every voice is heard and where you learn to give constructive feedback to each other. Mostly the feedback we get in school is kind of devastating in the form of grades. But really the kind of feedback you need in the rest of your life is how do I actually improve my product? Because we both want that to happen. So how do we bring those things into the classroom? And it's a really key step also in the fight against harassment, bullying, and implicit bias. If every person is expected to speak, every person has an individual important contribution, and everyone is socialized to expect that, it means your voice is heard. Thank you so much. There's so many rich ideas and important lessons in what you talked about. I think starting with just the idea of the mission itself that you're working on that is filled with so much uncertainty, yet in school, um, everything is almost predetermined down to the second. So right. So that young people never get a chance to kind of productively engage with uncertainty in kind of a supportive and, and somewhat structured environment. So everything's predetermined. There's hardly anything that's to be determined by the students. 
that coupled with what you're talking about, you know, the importance of really recognizing that it really isn't when you're working collaboratively, it's really not about out competing um, the person that's working on the same kind of project or end, but really trying to give voice. And something I talk about on the show a lot that's a key feature in my work is the idea that creativity thrives in difference, not sameness. So, so we absolutely, particularly when we're facing uncertainty, we need to hear different perspectives and recognize the kind of nonlinear emergent nature of trying to make sense of what we really don't completely understand at the moment um, and kind of work together in that space. Those are really important ideas. And you talk about how those can even address some of the issues we see with bullying and alienation and, and young people feeling silenced. You know, again, there's a lot of pressure sometimes for students to participate um, in just kind of by voice, you know, raise their hand and so on. So there's other ways for young people to express themselves and express their ideas. They don't always have to be in the spotlight of sharing their ideas. Have you seen examples of what that would look like in a kind of supportive space that you're kind of describing? Absolutely. Uh, I love how you summed up these things. And I want to start from one of the points you made, which is that our students very seldom get to really grapple with not just ambiguity, but the unknown, things that there is no answer to. We're brought up believing that all the answers are in the back of the book, and also critically, that the teacher is withholding this information until they're ready. They have to answer, and their answer is really a test. They're answering something where the teacher already knows the answer and they are trying to get it right and then be judged right or wrong. So what we've tried to do in the classroom, we were doing it very successfully with undergraduates and now we're doing it in high school and we're doing it in fifth and sixth grade. We're letting the students ask the question and then letting them go off and find partial answers. We're trying to combat what I think happens commonly in high school, which is learned helplessness around learning, that, that all the information is supplied to you, that you are responsible to learn and memorize every sentence, and that every sentence is relevant. Now, none of those things are true for the rest of your life. And so how about we start preparing now for a situation where you need to go and try to find some good information to answer your own question, recognize that it'll only be a partial answer and be ready and come back and share it with the rest of the team who will each have found some other partial answer. And we can even do this in fifth and sixth grade. And so as you so rightly point out, uh, in primary and secondary school, especially online as we are now, the sense of being stared at, the camera is on, the eyes are on you, they are directly on you, is very frightening for a lot of students. It's too much peer pressure. So how else can they report out to their team? They can write down a couple of sentences of, 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 a, of a conclusion. They can share it in writing. They can share it in the chat. Uh, they can share through a little video presentation that they make. They don't have to report out with their voice the way we do in college. But I will say that this process really is working beautifully for us. We have our whole inquiry um, cycle set up such that the students learn to deal with this ambiguity and do their own research and share out. And this year, for the first time, we've done it 100% online, asynchronously, and it's worked. And so I'm excited about this. I think it's an important component of education going forward to teach students the skills that they're going to need later in the workforce and in their lives. Yeah, I, I love what you're talking about. I mean, the first part is disrupting what I call the game of intellectual hide and seek, which is the game that's played in school, right? You know, guess what I already know? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and how I already know it. So disrupting that, 
the importance of bringing in a kind of a plurality of perspectives, but also multiple pathways at demonstrating what you know and, and what you're curious about and bringing that together and, and trying to kind of grapple with the unknown and the unknowables, um, but try to make some sense of the uncertainty they're facing. So as we kind of now think towards the future, and given this is the Learning Futures podcast, um, I would invite you to share with us some possible futures, the good, the bad, and the beautiful in the kind of work you're doing. Thank you. I love that opportunity. Well, I people much wiser than myself have made the incredibly acute observation that we should not be trying to return to quote normal as we begin to understand handle cope and handle covid normal was actually not that good i think we can do way better this is a moment where the opportunity to pivot how we educate because we've been disrupted and everything seems much more possible than it used to and so to me the bad would be returning to uh the strictures of teaching very strict content, teaching very strict standards, and passive learning. Passive learning, I think, is the the worst part of it all. I think we absolutely have to give our students active learning. Passive learning, I think, was more apt, uh, might I say, a couple of hundred years ago when people would come to institutions of education to receive content that they couldn't get any other way. We were the owners and the holders of information. But now information is everywhere. We live in an ocean of information. So now what we need to learn is the processes of how to sift through that and come to an understanding that is supported. Uh, Why do we have this conclusion? How do we deal with our emotional reactions? What is a biased source? These kinds of things. And so to me, a great outcome from my point of view would be uh, an extension of our concepts of education. We are launching a, a new program, which is a partnership between Arizona State University and Beagle Learning, which is a little tech company that I helped to found. But really, it's the concept that is important here of of a distributed university around the world where there are teams, wherever teams want to spring up, in libraries, in community centers, at schools, within schools, trying to solve the problems that they, they see in front of them. And what we provide is the process for problem solving. We want to start helping humans do better at the transition from idea to outcome and action. That tends to be where we get stuck. Maybe we have a complaint, which we could form a question out of, but then we have to learn about it, find a solution and enact that solution. And so in my perfect distant world, there would be these problem solving groups everywhere where we can help our local communities and then grow from that scale to solve the problems that we see and that everyone would feel that they were a problem solver and could use this ocean of information and take action to create a better society. That's my that's my utopian learning future. Yeah, I, that just really resonates with me. And I think a lot of folks, and particularly young people too, who really want to have an opportunity to solve problems that matter to them, even problems that maybe other folks don't even see as a problem. So I, I, right. I think this idea of these kind of pop-up problem-solving teams around the world is so generative. You know, my work, I focus on something called legacy projects, which is trying to get young people to identify problems that matter to them and partner with people to help solve them. And I love that you're building this infrastructure to do that. And so Another thing we talked about in creativity studies, I'd be interested in hearing about from your perspective, but then also where people can learn more about the kind of work that you're doing. So what about problem finding? So one of the things that we talk about in the field a lot is the importance of finding good problems to solve, that often the problem you identify isn't actually the problem, 
but maybe a symptom of a deeper problem or a completely different problem. Yes, beautifully stated, beautifully stated. Uh, this, this program I'm talking about is called Open Citizen Project, and we're just launching it. We have our first uh, teams working now. We don't even have a website yet. It's brand new, but you can reach us through, uh, through Beagle Learning or through, uh, through me at Arizona State University. And the first element of our process is, in fact, this problem definition. And, and what you point out is so critical, the idea that what you might identify as the problem, it might just be the tip of the shoot that's sticking out above the ground. And when you start digging into it, there are really quite different root causes and maybe several, and maybe it's a tangled web. So two important lessons, I think, there. One is that you can systematize a way to think about problems, dig into them, pose them as a question, leave them open-ended so you can keep learning about them and not rush to a solution. That's a big problem. That's a problem of problems right there. Uh, make sure you understand them first. And also forgive yourself for recognize ahead of time that your first statement is probably not going to be the statement you're going to end up with. You're going to learn more. You're going to change your wording. You're going to pivot your direction. This is the nature of learning, learning about complex human problems. And so we start in a very, very simple way, asking people to think about issues in their community that they would like to change. And there are so many ways to start thinking about this. It might be as simple as, what about this book we just read in class? What are some issues that were brought up in that book? And do they concern you also? What about interviewing your parents? What about simply thinking about the last thing that really irritated you or made you feel bad? Was that a symptom of a, of a problem that possibly could be addressed by a team of people? So all these different ways to brainstorm many topics and then to begin to form them as questions and then to begin to research them and narrow them down to um, a step toward an action or a solution that could influence it. And so, so we're also very concerned with exactly what you say. How do you, how do you generate a problem in such a way that you can take meaningful action on it? And it's not a simple thing. You're not going to figure it out this afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, the ideas you're sharing and the work you're doing it's such a refreshing um, take on education and, and I think so hopeful and empowering and, and really getting young people to work together to really try to make the world a better place and starting right now, not waiting. Again, you know, the other thing I often say is like education's often this promissory note that never really pays out. Like someday you'll use this, but, yes. but what about right. right now? And so I think the idea of having these pop-up problem-solving experiences, providing these kind of structured experiences with uncertainty is so powerful and important. We really appreciate you spending time sharing your ideas and your work. And we'll make sure we have all that, all the links and information in our show notes. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, the main thing I want to share is that we have a kind of a motto in Interplanetary Initiative, the initiative that houses part of this at Arizona State University, and that is that everyone is invited all the time. There are ways for anybody who wants to to take simple first steps or to come and run pilots with us or to help uh, form and change the process. We really would love this to be as widely a, a crowdsourced kind of set of solutions as possible. And, and we found in our early pilots that these programs can really help with persistence because just as you say, it's not a promissory note, it's that you're doing it right now. And so my real message is um, think about the future. We can all do this together. Excellent. That's a great message to close on. That's a wrap.
Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.